the daily lectionary comments for July the 27th. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, Samuel wraps up uh, his time as a leader of the nation uh, to hand off that mantle to the newly anointed Saul. He gives a very interesting speech to the people here. And Acts uh, 22, beginning at verse 30, Paul before the Sanhedrin, and we'll see how that goes. Okay, first Samuel chapter 12. Um, what's happening here is that the baton is being passed from Samuel, who had been the national leader up to this time, and it's now being passed to the newly anointed Saul, who is going to be king over a united Israel. And Samuel gives uh, a speech here, which is a very interesting speech. It, it picks up on a lot of the themes that were back in chapter eight of this book, the tensions between the people asking for a king and whether that's a good or a bad thing and uh, whether whether this is really Israel rejecting God or whether this is God's plan uh, in ruling Israel. And you have a lot of tension in this speech here where, well, quite frankly, Samuel just seems bitter still. The speech begins with Samuel essentially saying, you know all those things I said that a king would do for you or to you, shall I rather say? Remember all those things I said? Well, I didn't do any of those things. And he goes through a, a list of things that he did not do to the people of Israel, whom he did not oppress, and he didn't take anybody's ox, and he didn't take anybody's donkey, and so on. And the people all have to agree that Samuel had not done any of those things. And of course, here's Saul, and he doesn't say, well, Saul is going to do this. He doesn't say the king is going to do this. He just sort of lets it lie there. I told you before what a king will do. And note, well, I didn't do that. Now, then he goes on to a, a brief summary of the history of Israel from the time they came out of Egypt until the present time, with the primary focus being on the time of the judges. And his focus here is that you kept screwing up, you kept crying out to the Lord, you kept being faithless, but God kept being faithful and he kept sending you deliverers. And he did that all the way through the period of judges and even to the present day, he raised me up and we have had some peace and security against the Philistines here. Um, uh, but, but that is because God is faithful, not because you have been faithful. And then Samuel sort of treats the request for a king sort of the crowning uh, sin, the, the summation of all the previous sins finally comes to a head in this. You just frankly want a king. You want somebody other than God to, to reign over you. Now, of course, that's putting it in the worst possible terms. Were the people really asking for somebody other than God to rule over them? And that probably wasn't what, in their what was in their mind, but Samuel takes it that way. You don't want the, the Lord to rule over you. You want a king to rule over you. And, and he treats this as sort of the crowning sin, the crowning act of wickedness of all these years, and now you've gone and done this. Now, this is a heck of a way to hand off the, uh, the baton of leadership to the newly, newly uh, anointed Saul. But the speech, Samuel's speech, isn't all that negative. It has some very negative features in it, but it also has this clear uh, promise that for all this wickedness, God will still bless you. God is going to bless you. 
God will bless your king. God will bless you through the king if you remain obedient to him. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and your king who reign over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, here's the thing. And this is the tension that we've had all along with regard to the people's request for a king. And is this a good thing or a bad thing? Um, here, here's the thing. God brought the people into the land and promised them prosperity, peace, security, and prosperity to live with him in joy. That's the whole reason why he brought them into the promised land. Now, the people believe that having a king is key for that. We simply have to have a king so that we can enjoy peace and security and joy and all of these things. And Samuel and the Lord is reminding the people, it is not the presence or the absence of a king that will cause you to live in this land in peace and security. It is obedience to the Lord, to the covenant of the Lord. So if you are requesting a king because you think that really is the key and not obedience to the Lord, then, then things will not go well. On the other hand, if you obey the Lord, it really doesn't matter whether you have a king or not. He'll bless you one way or the other. And if you want to have a king and will be obedient to me, then very well. It's not all that different than a Christian who prays uh, to the Lord for, uh, I don't know, a, a better job or more money or whatever, because, because they believe that if they have this new job or the extra money or whatever it is that they're praying for, that they will live happily ever after with their God and with their fellow human beings. When in fact, the conditions for happiness and fruitful living is not how much money you have, but it is your fidelity to the Lord and his to you and that relationship. In that sense, that's where the sin of these people lay. They think that the king is the key rather than understanding that fidelity to the covenant is the key to success and life in the land. Okay, Acts 22, beginning at verse 30. Uh, we have the Roman authorities deciding that they really want to get to the bottom of this, and they order the Sanhedrin to convene, and they bring Paul in to stand before the Sanhedrin uh, to see what kind of a trial we can get here and what's going on. This does not go very well. Paul begins speaking, and no sooner does he begin speaking that the high priest orders that he be struck. And Paul verbally strikes back at the high priest, but he didn't realize it was the high priest. And he apologizes for this. He even quotes Exodus chapter 22 to the fact that you must not curse the leader of your people. And so it's, it's one way that Paul is demonstrating that he knows the law, he follows the law, he reveres the law, even though you're a high priest who is persecuting the church. Now, uh, when, when this is done, the situation uh, is, is obvious to Paul that he is not going to get a fair trial here. This isn't going to go well. So Paul, rather than seeking uh, to have a, uh, a platform to preach the gospel here and to make a witness, he determines instead to exploit what he sees as an obvious political division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
The Sadducees deny the, a resurrection, and the Pharisees very much believe in a resurrection, and Paul himself is a Pharisee. So basically, he blurts out in front of them, this is all because of the resurrection. I'm being persecuted because of the resurrection. And of course, that wasn't untrue. But the fact that he put that out there the way he did was designed to turn the Pharisees and the Sadducees against one another, and it worked so well, in fact, that some of the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin even began to to um, uh, support Paul, at least in a limited way. Uh, and, and so anyway, pandemonium breaks out. And, and so the Roman soldiers have to scoop uh, Paul out from, from the council uh, you know, to save his life. This is now the third time in two days that Paul has nearly been torn to pieces by an angry mob. Um, you can see that Paul is a real lightning rod because of his past leadership among the Jews and because of his obvious present leadership. Um, he is a real hot potato. Okay, well, at any rate, uh, Paul is whisked away, and the Romans uh, keep him safe from the mobs, and uh, Jesus himself appears to Paul later on and comforts him and says, look, you've testified in Jerusalem. Um, you are going to testify in Rome. Now, the remainder of the book of Acts is a couple of things that you need to know. We're going to be making our way to Rome. It's not going to happen uh, immediately, but the, the progress of the gospel is now going to move from Jerusalem to Rome. That's number one. And number two, Paul is going to remain in Roman custody for the remainder of the book of Acts. For a little while, he will stay in Jerusalem in Roman custody. Then they're going to move him to the town of Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, which is the Roman headquarters in, in, in um, Palestine. They're going to keep him under custody there. And this is going to go on for two to three years before Paul actually sets out for Rome. And we'll get to that in coming lectures. One, one little thing here to note is that the letters to the Ephesians, to the um, Philippians, the Colossians, and to Philemon, these four letters are oftentimes called his prison letters. And they were most likely written by Paul while he was incarcerated in Caesarea. Uh, and the number of times in these letters he refers to his chains and in his incarceration and so on like that. So a little additional context. That's what's going on here. And tomorrow we'll see what happens next.